NBC now projecting that Ted Cruz will be uh, reelected. I got to ask you about how it feels in the room and whether or not people in the room have absorbed that call. No, no, no. <laughs> no, don't do this now. <laughs> I'm not ready to talk about this right now. <laughs> you have to give me a little bit of time. The 2018 midterms are over. They're over. We can go back to our hobbies now, right? Like bird watching, basket weaving, maybe you're into coin collecting. Well, don't get too comfortable. Any political respite is unlikely to last long. Democrats have won back the House, while Republicans have scored a strong majority in the Senate. The election also saw some big changes in governor's races, where several winning candidates ran on robust renewable energy platforms. Plus, there were some mixed reactions to state clean energy ballot initiatives. We're going to discuss all of the above. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America. I'm Julia Piper, senior editor with Green Tech Media. Now that you've been to the ballot box, filled in your circles, I want to take a minute to introduce you to GTM Squared. Squared is GTM's premium information service that equips readers like you with vital insights on solar, energy storage, grid edge, policy, and electric vehicle markets all around the world. We dig deeper into today's most important storylines that tie together trends across markets to keep our members aware of opportunities impacting their business. Does GTM's ongoing coverage of the global energy transformation help you do your job better? If so, then please consider becoming a Squared member today. As a podcast listener, you can now save $50 off an annual Squared membership before the end of this year. Just use the promo code podcast when you sign up today at www.gtmsquared.com. And now, on with the show. It's Tuesday morning on the West Coast, and the 2018 midterm results are almost all in. I'm sitting here with Political Climate's Republican and Democrat co-hosts to dissect the results. Brandon Hurlbut is the former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under President Obama. And Shane Skelton is a former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. Although he won't hold that role for too much longer. What time did you guys go to bed last night? Did you stick around for the end results? So I went to bed really early, honestly, about 9.30. We have that advantage being in California because that means it's you know almost 1 o'clock a.m. on the East Coast. But also, interestingly, everything I cared about had already been decided. It was very clear that we were going to get up to 54 in the Senate. It was very clear we were going to lose the House somewhere between, what, 20 and, and 35 seats. Obviously, it's trending towards the higher end. But um, I expected to be very surprised, for better or worse, and I, I really wasn't surprised at all. You called a 54, right? Wasn't that your final uh, guess in the Senate? Yeah, 54 was my final guess. I, I wasn't perfect because I um, I thought we were going to hold Nevada, and I just forgot to mention Indiana. So had I been thinking clearly, I would have said 55, and I would have been wrong um, because we lost Nevada, but the number ended up being right. Are all the races in? As we record this, what else are we waiting on? We've got some we're waiting on Montana, Arizona, Montana Florida. was called. On the oh, way Montana was called. Yep. So Tester held Montana. Tester held? Tester held, yep. Ooh. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd be talking about 55. You know, we might even be getting cozy about, well, I, I was going to say 56, but all the races are done. So I guess we wouldn't be talking about 56. And I guess the all. upshot is Shane was basically right about the Senate. I think I, and I hate the prediction game. I did not like doing that as part of the show, but I think I was spot on with the House. 30 is what I said. So that will be about right. And then, of course, Beto. 
I am crushed that he lost. You're going to play this really embarrassing, you know, soundbite from last night where Julia stuck a microphone in my face as soon as Beto's hey, race sorry, was called. It's my journalistic well, duty. And, and I feel like I'm not going to let Brandon get away with this. We both called about 20 to 35, but he slack noted us yesterday. I wish I would have gone more bold on the house. So, you know, when when election when the election was rolling around, I think you were feeling juiced about 40, 50, maybe 60. A true blue wave. My public uh, prediction is what I stand by. <laughs> Yeah, well, it is interesting. I know you guys have thoughts about this, but Shane, you tweeted out that it wouldn't be a true blue wave unless the Democrats got something like 37 in the House because of historical norms pointing to, you know, the opposing party taking a greater chunk of the House when you have a reasonably popular president or unpopular yeah. president. What was the circumstance? No, really? no, I think um, 37 would not have been a wave. That would have been an expected average year. So I think a wave is, you know, Obama losing six seats in the Senate and 63 seats in the House. Uh, I saw a pundit earlier today, I don't remember who it was, make a point that if we're litigating whether or not it was a wave, it wasn't a wave. <laughs> you don't litigate waves. You just stare at them in awe. Right. And right. so Democrats uh, certainly underperformed their polling. They underperformed expectations. They underperformed history. And of course, in the Senate, they just got whipped. I mean, I don't really care whether you call it a wave or not, but here's what happened. Democrats were not supposed to be able to contend for the House this decade. Shane's party was so successful in their gerrymandering efforts, you know, over the last redistricting (laughs) over the last several years. Sounds nice, though, doesn't it? (laughs) Basically, the House was written off for this decade, both by Democrats and Republicans. So for the Democrats to take the House last night up against those barriers is a monumental accomplishment for Democrats. So and in whether we won by, you know, 30 seats or 40 seats or 25 seats, we have the Speaker of the House. We have the chairmanship of these committees. We are going to be able to provide, you know, real oversight, which is going to be a problem for, I think, the Trump administration. And we're going to be able to do things on climate that we weren't able to do before. Hold hearings. Maybe Nancy Pelosi will reconstitute the Select Committee on Energy and Climate. That will bring more attention to this issue, which we need. So uh, I think, you know, whether you want to call it a wave or not, doesn't matter. It was a big night in the House for Democrats. So... Look, there's no doubt, right? If I if I was able to draw this up from scratch, I would not concede the speaker's gavel. So I'm not going to sit here and disagree with you that that wasn't meaningful. And, and like you said, the investigative powers that come with that are meaningful. I guess I'm viewing this election through the lens of what we were supposed to expect, both just historically because it's a, a president's first midterm, but also just because what we've been told and what we've seen on the news and all the polling that was going on. So I guess what I mean is that I feel like Republicans had a great victory compared to what was expected. But of course, you never want to lose um, one chamber. Moving sort of past that, I disagree with what you said. I think, you know, I came in here with my talking points prepared to say, great night for Republicans, um, good night for Democrats, frankly, and an awful night uh, for the climate or people who care about the environment. It sounds like you have a different take on that, and I'm interested to hear why. Well, I don't, I wish it was a better night for climate. I really do. Well, we can talk about the ballot initiatives. Yeah, um, I got some views on that. I don't think it was all that bad, but yeah, we'll get no, into it in a minute. I think just, just taking the House is a huge win for climate. Taking Picking up seven new governors, huge win for climate. Like, just think about this. You know, we have 14 states on, we've talked about the CAFE standards, you know, the fuel efficiency standards. 14 states, you know, want to oppose Trump on that. We might be able to add seven more. You could have 49 if the federal government wins in court. It's totally moot, right? And and if they don't win in court, California's going to do their thing and automakers aren't going to change their behavior anyway. Okay. Sure. But, you know, we talked on the show about uh, there was a bill in Congress to end the EV tax credit. That will never get through the House of Representatives now. So, like, that's going to stay. Um, we've talked about 
um, you know, the, on the governors, the impact on public utilities commissions. This is, these are these commissions at the state level that have enormous influence over energy and climate policy. Now, with more Democratic governors, they will appoint more, you know, renewable, uh, you know, friendly, um, you know, commissioners and such. So there's a lot to be happy about on climate, you know, from last night. There's also some uh, very disappointing, you know, outcomes as well. Well, I know Julia wants to tee that up. So I just want to make one last house comment before we sort of move on to the climate aspect. And that is that, um, Republicans were, you know, uh, I'm so disappointed in losing the house for one reason is that Republicans were so certain they were going to lose the house that 45 of them vacated their seats. They retired. It's much more difficult to win an open seat than it is to keep an incumbent seat. I think had Republicans known, you know, 12 months ago, what we know today and had not vacated those seats, Republicans could have held the House majority. So that is one disappointing um, aspect of this is that the perception of a blue wave actually opened up a lot of competitive seats that led to a Democrat takeover of the House. And that bums me out. I'm super excited about is this new generation of leadership that will come to D.C. Sean Caston, we've talked about him on our pre-election episode. He ran on climate. He won. Democrat in Illinois. Democrat in Illinois. District yeah, and who was, you know, an energy efficiency um, from the energy efficiency industry. Mike Levin, you know, also from the clean energy industry. He's going to Washington now. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, we've talked about many times, will be in Washington now, you know, promoting her new, her Green New Deal. And then we have, you know, more women, more diversity. This is all, you know, really positive sign for us. Yeah. So let's talk about some other races that we've talked about in other episodes. There's Dan McCready, a Democrat running in a conservative district in North Carolina. He's actually a solar developer, but did ultimately lose. That was interesting. Carlos Crubello, we've talked about him many times, leader of the Climate Solutions Caucus in, in Congress. He was ultimately voted out. So I'm Shane, I want to get your thoughts on that in a second. I will note, I talked to the Citizens Climate Lobby this morning. Uh, we've had them on our show talking about a carbon price. And I said, okay, what does it mean that for sure 11 Republicans in the Climate Solutions Caucus have lost and maybe more? So a chunk of them lost. And I was like, what does this mean for the future of that? What does this mean for your carbon tax proposal? And I mean, it, it may be a talking point, but they seem pretty sincerely um, positive in the sense that they thought they had a lot more Republicans that were still interested in joining. They felt that they could replace the Republicans who were lost. They were not surprised that Curbelo lost. They feel like in Ryan Fitzpatrick in Pennsylvania, who also co-sponsored the bill in Congress to pass a carbon price, uh, he did win. He had the highest LCV voting of any Republican as well, and he won. So they, LCV being League of Conservation Voters, trying to get right. better about our acronyms. I know the acronyms, the alphabet soup. We got to watch for that. But the point there is like they don't seem to think that the Climate Solutions Caucus is totally um, irrelevant. They feel like they can make up for it. They pointed out that there were only like a handful of Republicans in that caucus at all two years ago. And then it went up to 45. So for them, that was a big deal even to get that much support. So they actually predicted that with the House control, they would have some additional legislation introduced this next session on carbon pricing. Whether or not it gets through the Senate, of course, we've as we've discussed, clearly the Republicans have a strong majority there, may not pass, get any further than the House, but it's something keeping it on the radar. It is much more difficult today than it was yesterday to pass any federal climate law. That doesn't mean it's impossible. Uh, that's my view for two reasons. One, it is much more difficult for anything, climate or otherwise, to move a bill through the Senate um, than it is through the House. And let's look at cap and trade. I don't even want to talk about the politics of cap and trade. Just simply, it's it's really difficult to get 60 votes for anything, right? Um, so we know that, even though you can get those bills uh, through the House. Also, 
the Republicans who lost were Republicans in sort of moderate centrist districts in the suburbs where the voters in those districts are actually probably pretty supportive of, of a clean environment, healthy environment and climate solutions. So I think what you've ultimately done, not you, of course, the royal you, is um, you've strengthened the Republican hand in the Senate in red states where they don't want to talk about climate. And you've weakened um, the Republican hand in the House where they do want to talk about climate by eliminating anyone who would want to help. Now, of course, the Democratic majority can introduce and vote on as many climate bills as they want. But as I've stated before, and I will state definitively again, without Republican champions, there is zero percent chance that any climate legislation gets done at the federal level. Well, I want to you know, talk about that for a minute, because Senator Heinrich, when he was on our show, you know, he said that the House was the bottleneck. They couldn't get anything through the House on this. So now you can. So anything that can pass in the Senate would likely pass in the House. So, Shane, these new Republican senators, do you think they could work with a moderate like a Senator Heinrich and, you know, Senator Murkowski and maybe get something done, even if it's on energy infrastructure or whatnot, or energy storage in the Senate that then the House would pass? Yeah, I think that's your path. So, you know, I had said a minute ago that it's a very narrow path um, and you need Republican champions. I think that's your path is you get a bill uh, in the Senate. And we've seen bills in the Senate that cover some energy efficiency as some of those energy. Right. So I would argue it's more likely now that we could get something done on the federal level than than it was, you know, before last night. See, and and here's where I, I disagree, though. I agree that that is the path and that's the path that we should all be striving for. I think that typically the Senate takes up bills after they pass the House. You rarely see the Senate send a bill to the House for an up or down vote. Um, the second part of that is now that Democrats are in the majority of the House, and let's be honest, there are some very progressive Democrats who took these seats, um, they might think that it's not enough. So let's say that Lisa Murkowski and Marie Cantwell, senators from Alaska and Washington, who have worked together well on these issues in the past, let's say they produce a really good bill. They work with Senator Heinrich. Um, I was going to say Senator Heller, but of course he was defeated last night. Um, but but some other, you know, sort of climate friendly, environmentally friendly Republicans from renewable states. Uh, and let's say they put together something really thoughtful that really does sort of walk that line, which is very possible and send it to the House. Um, are you going to have progressive Democrats who say, no, this is what a Republican climate bill looks like? And they were in charge. But now I'm in charge and I'm not doing this half ass sort of bullshit where it doesn't really actually hurt these fossil fuel companies. We have the majority. We're going after him. And it is what it is. That's what I expect to see from the House. But I very much hope that you're right. You know, bills going to conference, people can make concessions. I feel like there's an appetite, especially around infrastructure, to get something passed right now. I think people are acknowledging that the grid is evolving really quickly. And on storage, for instance, like that's something people are just generally behind, I think, across the aisle. And Let me piggyback on you, Julia. And, and I'd, I'd ask this to you, Amber. And we've talked about on this show before that incrementalism is not acceptable. I think that it is. Brandon thinks that it isn't. And I, he, didn't, I didn't say it's not acceptable at all. Or it's not ideal. Okay. Because if, if people it, like you, who I know are very progressive and very sort of active. And I give you credit. That's not a, that's not any way a knock. I know that you you believe in it and you want to you want to fight for it. If people like you will accept incrementalism, then I think we have a path. Well, you know, I am scared that of the 12 year sort of deadline from the IPCC report in, in the 12 years. So I much favor big, bold actions. But I don't think there's any Democrat in the House that looks at, you know, where we are right now with a, you know, clear majority in the Senate for Republicans, a Republican president who's not going to say like, you know, well, we're going to need to compromise. We're not going to get what we ideally want. So I think there will, people will be open to compromise. Let's talk about the president. Don't you guys think that the president, you know, I don't care if you don't like him. Don't you I think don't. that he is the most likely Republican president 
to sign something that appears to be a big deal. I don't think he's so vehemently anti-climate. I think that if he gets to deliver on a big package that looks like an economic package, an infrastructure package that has bipartisan support, I think he would take pride in being the president who, who did that. I think he likes winning more so than he cares about winning on any specific issue. I buy that. I hope that's right. Uh, you know, on last night with the House... You know, we were talking about whether it was a blue wave or not. And if you look at the 2010 popular vote in, you know, congressional races in the House, you know, that was, you know, clearly for Republicans when they swept Democrats out. Last night, it was about the same, uh, you know, majority for Democrats on the popular vote. So, you know, this was a, you know, in some ways, you know, a, a clear repudiation uh, of what's going on in D.C. But in other ways, you know, just what, you know, Shane will want to talk about in the Senate, you know, I am, you know, I think there are a lot of Democrats out there that are feeling so disappointed that Trump's message on fear and hate was not, uh, you know, was not more repudiated in other areas of this country. That it actually motivated voters in some areas. I mean, that is clear. There's definitely more partisanship than ever before. And I thought it was interesting to see at least some of the Democrat leaders. I don't know if this is a strategy on their end, but Pelosi came out and talked about unifying a nation. Saw Tom Perez, head of the DNC, talking about some, you know, broader we are a nation kind of language. I think um, Beto had the same same perspective when he gave his concession speech well that was actually just a speech to to prop himself up to run so that let's you know let's hope he does it may be a strategy but i thought it was interesting the democrats took that that tone that they could have doubled down and gone the progressive route and said we are ready to dig in and fight every inch of the way instead there was language around we are a nation which i thought was interesting in the broader narrative of which type of democrat wins do the hardcore progressive ones win or the more moderate ones and i think last night According to some of the pundits I listen to, you know, the more moderate ones kind of won. So you you do have to not everywhere, but yeah, that I, is some of the takeaway. I don't I don't think there's a clear, you know, signal on that. But what I think is and this is important, I think, for our show, um, what I think last night showed is that in the Senate for Democrats, it's going to be hard for us to get a majority anytime soon. Uh, you know, it will be 2020 will be a battle. But it's going to be another uphill battle because we're going to have to flip, you know, somewhere along the lines of five seats. Uh, the map will be more favorable for us. Uh, but I think last night was very sobering on the Senate side for Democrats, which I think means, you know, we on climate legislation, we are going to have to work together. We're going to have to work with Republicans. Well, and, and Trump said today um, in his press conference that. There are two routes forward, right? One is that we work together on these big things. He talked about infrastructure a lot, but I actually think most people think that climate is sort of part of an infrastructure package, or at least it plays a role in an infrastructure package. He said the other route is that you investigate me, and I'm paraphrasing here. So if you come after me, I'm coming after you, and there we are. And one of the reporters asked, and I'm paraphrasing a great deal, but one of the reporters asked, so can you do both, right? Can you spar over those investigations and work together? And his answer was a pretty plain no. Um, so I think what we're actually going to see, and Julia's right that everyone's singing kumbaya, but we always do the day after an election. When the new Congress gets seated in early January, I promise you on day one, we're going to be talking about impeachment. We're going to be talking about Trump's taxes. We're going to be talking about any sort of uh, administration official that they find distasteful. And uh, I don't think Trump is going to come to the table and say, you know what we should do? We should address climate change while you dig through my entire life, my business and my family. That's just not going to work out that way. So I hope you're right. But I but I have a feeling on January 4th or whatever day it is that they get seated, uh, we're not going to see uh, let's work together and make the country a better place. They're going to see a, a pent up group of frustrated Democrats 
Democrats who want to go after this president. Well, what I'm excited about with the Democrats taking the House, and you know more about the House than I do, Shane, is like you could do more than one thing at a time. I think what is exciting is let's get back to the work of the committees. Congress needs to do its job. So can we do things on health care? And, you know, by the way, for all the Democrats out there that, you know, one of the big outcomes from last night, the Affordable Care Act is the law of the land for another two years, for sure. That's amazing, right? So I, can we get to work on some of these policy issues that we ran on, healthcare, immigration, you know, getting some attention to climate and energy? Yes. At the same time, can the Oversight Committee that no longer has Devin Nunes, who's a fucking joke, as the chairman, do its job? Yes. Well, so, we can do all this at the same time. So I think the answer genuinely is no. Um, he, he uh, Nunez was Senate Intel, but um, or I'm sorry, House Intel. But the answer is no, because committees have limited resources. And so you're either using Energy and Commerce Committee to do provide legitimate oversight of cabinet agencies, uh, to provide oversight on the health care uh, program or write a new health care program. Telecom also falls under that committee. You don't have time to subpoena the president's bank records and look through his family and do all those things. And you won't have the hospitality that you need. A lot of these committee hearings are, are bipartisan. They don't appear that way on TV, but you work with the majority of minority staff to plan witnesses, to write memos, and to sort of tee up what you're going to do. And it's just very difficult to do that with one hand when you're using your other hand to beat them. Well, Eni News is reporting that, you know, if Democrats win, this was before the election, they would likely call in uh, acting EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler, Energy Secretary Rick Perry, Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke, uh, in for some oversight hearings, I guess, to understand how those agencies are being run. Obviously, Zinke's under close scrutiny right now for some of his personal spending and other affiliations. Um, you know, they'll want to look closer at potential rollbacks and stalls on Obama era uh, regulations. So that that could get messy as well. So I think the upshot here is like there's no one pretty arc. There's no kumbaya moment as as much as people may have mentioned bipartisanship last night. So, so Julia, on that point, though, what you're talking about is legitimate oversight. That's Congress fulfilling its responsibility. I think you can move legislation and provide oversight of the EPA and provide oversight of the Department of Interior. Congress is support. They're required to do that. So what you're talking about, I think, does not kill uh, the chance to legislate. I'm talking about digging through someone's personal life. I think that would create the hostility. But I think what you're talking about Nini, is completely reasonable. That's Congress's job. Depends on what you call personal life. If, you know, facilitating an election with Russians is your personal life, well, then, yeah, we need to dig through that. Well, let's leave it at Congress for now and take a closer look at the states. So let's take a look at some more of the state-level outcomes. Brandon, you mentioned the governor's races earlier. Um, I talked to Adam Browning, executive director of Vote Solar today, and he highlighted several other races that turned out well for clean energy in his view. For one, there's Governor Cuomo, who's reelected in New York. And while some have wanted the governor to do even more on climate, he's actually been really strong on clean energy. Democrats also took control of New York State Senate. He called the new chair of the Energy Committee a superstar on renewables. So Vote Solar is hoping to get additional clean energy policy passed there. Then there's New Mexico, where Michelle Luan Grisham ran on a platform of 50% renewables and won. Senator Heinrich, who we've had on this show before uh, to talk about energy policy, he won his Senate seat again. Then you have the Midwest, where new Democratic governors in Michigan and Illinois both endorsed 100% renewable energy goals in their states. In Colorado, Jared Polis, you know, he ran on a very aggressive energy and climate uh, policy agenda, and he won. So this is very positive. Yeah, Polis ran on a 100% um, platform too. And also, um, 
below the governor level, there were some great state legislative pickups for Democrats. We flipped, um, I think, seven different you know chambers across the country. We broke a couple of super majorities, like in North Carolina. Uh, so down ballot, uh, you know, there was some good news for Democrats as well. Let's talk a little bit, if you guys don't mind, because we talked in Yale about the the ballot initiatives. And I, I think I walked away from these uh, differently than you guys did. And I'm curious to get sort of that on record for our listeners. I know we talked about Washington State. As I understand it, that hasn't been fully settled, but the vote count to this very moment looks like um, that ballot initiative, uh, the the carbon tax has been, carbon fee, whatever you want to call it, has been rejected. Um, Colorado tried to put some sort of frack on banning on public lands, but the way that they did it, it basically covered the entire state. Um, that was rejected. The Arizona RPS was rejected. Um, I don't know enough about the, the details of any of these to know exactly why they would or wouldn't be rejected, but I'm thinking more thematically, Brandon, you had made the point that we've got to try everything. And so you run candidates that you like um, at the state and federal level. But if you can't get the policies that you're looking for, a lot of states allow you to use these ballot initiatives so that voters can go ahead and and promote the policy preferences that they have. And so we were kind of waiting for this outcome to see if that was a path forward. My quick take on that is that um, voters aren't going to make that leap. And so they're going to have to depend on their elected representatives. But did you guys walk away with something different there? I mean, I was disappointed. Uh, there's no way to, it was setback, uh, no doubt. But I mean, the the incumbents, meaning the oil and gas companies and the utilities spent over $100 million on those like three ballot initiatives. So um, the, which ones? So Arizona, 50% RPS, Nevada, Nevada and Washington State. Did Nevada pass? I couldn't. Nevada passed. Okay. Well, there's two. There's two things. Nevada is confusing. There's the deregulating, which did not pass. And then there's increasing the RPS, the Renewable Portfolio Standard, that did pass. But needs to pass again because it's a constitutional amendment. They have a weird law. It's passed two times in a row. Right, right. Which the deregulation ballot initiative was on its second time around. And it passed with really strong support in 2016. So it was interesting to see it not go forward this time. And that's a fascinating race. I think, as you mentioned in our last episode, Shane, you have Warren Buffett's utility, the monopoly utility, NV Energy, uh, Buffett being a Democrat, up against Sheldon Adelson's uh, casinos. Uh, he's a big Republican donor, and the casinos are really pushing for deregulation, which a lot of people say would be good for renewables. So there's sort of what you might think of as some party affiliation with support with renewables. Uh, that kind of got thrown out the window there. But all the sources I've been talking to say the deregulation initiative in Nevada n- is not a loss for renewables, the fact that it did not pass. Because Envy Energy has since stepped up. They announced a bunch of really competitively priced uh, clean energy projects, solar plus storage projects. They really upped their game on this, I think, as a result of the momentum. Plus, you have a Democrat now in the governor role there. He ran on a clean energy platform, very strong one. And the legislature previously passed a 50% RPS, which I mentioned Sandoval vetoed, And now you have the public saying they want a higher RPS, a legislature that's open to it, a governor that's open to it. You could see Nevada passing that RPS even before it comes around the second time. Meanwhile, the deregulation piece, um, it may be moot because the state's still moving forward with renewables. And the deregulation thing was just about who owned them. Yeah, Utilities in states with a lot of cheap solar are going to acquire a lot of cheap solar. I, I don't. You know, I don't think you need a constitutional amendment to make that happen. I think they want to do that. The deregulation piece, you're right. That's more of a personal beef about who acquires 
the um, the, the product. But I don't think that you're going to see a setback for solar because deregulation didn't pass. Right. So that's why I don't think that anything in Nevada was an, a hit for clean energy necessarily. No, but you know the incumbent industries, you know the some of these utilities and oil and gas, they ran the old playbook where they threw tens of millions of dollars uh, at voters saying this is going to increase your costs, and it worked. Uh, and that's disappointing. But, you know, in Arizona, we may be able to do something like what happened here in California, where instead of the 50% renewable, you know, there could be a compromise and maybe it's 80% clean and it includes nuclear and whatnot. So, you know, it's not over yet in far, as, as far as getting a good policy in Arizona. Uh, but on the carbon fee, you know, that's the third time we've tried this. We've tried it a couple different ways and can't seem to get it over the line in Washington state, which is, a you know, a state that you you want it to pass in for it to have legs to go other places so that's that's difficult it's a tough one to swallow yeah i think shane weren't you saying you didn't think that whether or not that ballot initiative passed it wouldn't necessarily matter either way no i don't think so because there was some social policy in there and so um i think it's unfair to say well if a carbon fee can't pass in washington then it's a stupid idea and it can't pass anywhere it's actually not my favorite idea as i've said before on this show but i don't think it not passing in washington is indicative um, because Washington is actually a pretty good makeup of our country. It's got rural areas, it's got urban areas, it's got suburban areas. But there was a lot more in that initiative than the carbon fee. And people, frankly, might not like how it was spent. Maybe, maybe they did. I'm just saying we don't know enough to say that that's a, a bold rejection of a carbon fee. So I think I agree that this isn't necessarily the death knell for carbon pricing in Washington state or in the nation, but that it is a very difficult conversation and a lot more work needs to be done on educating people on what it does and figure out, get more consensus on how it's structured. I want to quickly go back to Arizona though, because that is a little bit messier. You had Arizona Public Service, the largest utility in the state, spend a lot of money on 30 that. $30 million. $30 million um, opposing Proposition 127, which would have increased the state renewable target to 50%. But then you do have this, as you mentioned, Brandon, earlier, this 80% clean energy standard being floated through the uh, Arizona Corporation Commission. Unclear what they're going to do next with that. There's some rumors that that was just floated as a way to take the pressure off of the ballot initiative saying, oh, look, we are, we are doing something. You know, a more, you know, a positive reading might be that this is such a, a, a good faith effort to keep Arizona Public Services utility uh, nuclear power plant online while progressing further toward renewables. So again, I actually don't think it's a total loss. To I'm your... for 80% clean energy. <laughs> right. And I think the cost is compelling enough in Arizona for solar in particular that you're going to see more be adopted irrespective of what happened with this ballot initiative. And that cost thing is interesting because that's the language that people say killed this ballot initiative, that it specifically said voters would accept this 50% RPS irrespective of cost, whereas the the market trend would tell you that it's affordable to deploy renewables in this in this state. Well, and, and this is exactly why I don't like ballot initiatives at all as a concept. And I, I don't know if I've mentioned that on this show before, but if I haven't, I, I really, really don't like them, even if I like the idea that's being proposed. And the reason for that is that Lobbyists are known as, as bad people, and it's a dirty word, but the reality of it is legislatures work because you have government who's in charge of overseeing, regulating, and passing laws, 
And then you have industries, and most of these government actors haven't worked in industry. So you need someone to facilitate that discussion and say, maybe your clean air goals are worthy ones, but it's just really difficult for us to acquire energy exactly the way you want us to right now. But here's something else we can do that would meet those same goals. I think that's the whole sort of process. And so when you have a ballot initiative, you just have people who don't meet regularly with industry. They don't understand the industry. They don't understand the process of acquiring energy. They don't understand the process of distributing energy. And so what you end up with is, $100 million of ads that are demonizing the other side, hoping that enough voters show up and vote for a ballot. I much prefer to see policy passed through the legislature because then any members of the state legislature or federal, if, if that's the case, can be well informed. Now, they might not agree with a particular lobbyist. They might not agree with their opponents, but at least they fully understand why people oppose something and what a better path forward would be in their view. And then they can make a decision based thereupon. And interestingly, in California, the gas tax uh, repeal failed. Big, big time, right? It, it was failed by like 10 points, which is interesting to me because it was a get out the vote, you know, operation. And Mimi Walters held on. Um, a lot of Republicans held on that people expected not to. Uh, Jeff Denham held on. Uh, David Valadeo held on, both in the Central Valley. Mimi Walters held on. Steve Knight um, seemingly got beat. They haven't called it. Katie Hill won. So, long story short is that they were targeting democrats were targeting seven seats in california the two in the central valley um i think were always a reach though polling showed that democrats could do well there um they were targeting uh steve knight's seat which it looked like they got that has part of la county so i'm not surprised at all um, that they got that seat but down in orange county i believe democrats did take dana rohrabacher's seat we did um and i was I, out there you know i i canvassed uh over the weekend uh, and on election day for Katie Hill and Harley Ruda, they both won. So I guess, you know, the out, you know, the outcome is just send me out there. Hit, get me out <laughs> to the doors and good Great. things are going to happen. I brought the magic. You're going to have a very busy schedule in 2020 then. <laughs> but you, but needless to say, Orange County was not turned, right? I mean, parts of Orange County were turned, but um, Mimi Walters was, was supposed to lose by five as of yesterday. And she won by three. Um, I, I, I'd love to pull some of these other ones up for a future episode. I mean, Mike Levin won. Harley Ruda won. Um, so I think two in Orange County, right? Yeah. Two out of like the five at the time. Yeah, that's your, like that. that's your base brother, man. Orange County, like you're losing Orange County and we're coming for the, for the rest of them in two years. Well, I think Ronald Reagan said Orange County is where good Republicans go to die. Um, and so we hope that that continues to be the case. But what I, what I will say, and, and this isn't my opinion, but more of an open question, a question that no one will be able to answer until 2022 or 2024 is are Republicans losing Orange County for demographic reasons? Or did certain voters vote against this incumbent president and they will go back home after that? I don't know, but I'd, but I'd be interested to see that play out. Just quickly touching a couple other energy related ballot initiatives, Colorado voters rejecting a ban on oil drilling, um, putting it at least 2,500 meters away from homes Julia, or other occupied this buildings. this is not uh, Canada. We're not on the metric system here. <gasps> oh. It's feet. No, oh, it's we're, feet. Ta we're talking meters, eh? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> don't you know? Wouldn't you like to be from Canada? It's not even a Canadian accent. That's like, like Minnesota. <laughs> On that note, Julia asked me the other day if I was growing a playoff beard, and I got a kick out of it because only someone from Canada or Wisconsin or Michigan or Minnesota would have any sense of what she meant by that. No. So these are hockey places, right? Of so course. I, I thought, that. Ever, I thought, I thought the, the playoff beard was a universal language. It's like understood. It's a hockey thing. It's mostly a hockey thing. Anytime Julia makes a relevant sports analogy, like I'm like proud. <laughs> quietly so am i i like i work really hard at it I want to stay relevant here 
Back to Colorado. Okay. Oil and gas wells have to be at least 2,500 feet away from homes or other occupied buildings. That proposal was rejected. So uh, that was interesting to see Colorado, a relatively blue state, uh, not put that limit on on oil drilling. Um, another one is in Florida. They approved a ban on offshore drilling, but apparently it's quite redundant. And oddly, that ballot initiative was coupled with an e-cigarette ban. Yeah, very strange. Offshore drilling and e-cigarettes on the same ballot. Losing those two races, the governor seat and the Senate seat in Florida last night was was tough. It was that was heartbreaking. So is it, though, for you? Because I'm excited that we got the Senate seat and the governor's seat. I'm kind of embarrassed for Bill Nelson, who was the only one in America who has not acknowledged that that Senate seat flipped uh, to date. But um, <clears throat> you, well, I think they have a mandatory recount. But if I'm Brandon, I, I feel differently. I feel like in a state you should get your clock cleaned in. We didn't know until the very last second what happened. So I would be optimistic if I were you. But the fact that you're not makes me a little bit happy. <laughs> you just want to own the libs. <laughs> I, I get it. Uh, no, I mean... You know, we're always so close in Florida. You know, it always like the polls looked good for Gillum. Um, people were feeling better about Nelson uh, because of Gillum uh, and, you know, his ability to inspire, you know, turnout from our base uh, and to lose so close razor thin again in Florida. You know, Florida just has, you know, just, it's, you know, going back to 2000 Al Gore, it's just such a um, sore spot for us. But the ballot initiative that passed that gives ex-felons uh, the making them eligible to vote that could be anywhere from a million to a million and a half ex-felons that could change the dynamics in Florida a little bit, assuming that a lot bit. Uh, well, assuming that you don't disenfranchise and suppress those votes, which you uh, have a history of doing and did again last night. I would you like specifically to- shame. Well, <laughs> you just, like, you gave, looked him right I'd, in the eye. I'd like to see felons not vote. I, I don't even I don't even take any any uh, issue with your characterization. So let's take a step back and kind of wrap this up here on um, broader takeaways. What happens now? Um, Brandon, I know you had some thoughts you want to end with on voting rights. You touched on Florida and how uh, felons will actually have the right to vote again now after having served their time. Um, are there any other you know, bigger election takeaways like that you'd want to talk about? Yeah. On the non sort of energy and climate related, I think you know, we are supposed to be the world's greatest democracy, the example for all. And when we have people waiting four hours in line and there's broken machines and not enough ballots, and this particularly happens in areas, you know, where there are, you know, you know uh, low income or disadvantaged communities, and we make it so hard. I mean, if you have to stand in line for four hours, but you have a service job or you have a shift, you, you have to make that shift, right? You can't just not show up. And so... What impact did that have on some of these races like Georgia that was super thin for Stacey Abrams, you know, or in Florida? This needs to be fixed. And I think when we think about how Democrats can use their new power, we need to shine a light on this and deal with it once and for all, whether it's amending the Voter Rights Act. And we did see some of this happen. You know, there's going to be automatic registration in Michigan and same day, you know, registration as well there. So there were some initiatives at the state that passed that's going to make it easier for people to vote. But what we have to make as a priority for Democrats is we want more people to vote. Republicans do not. In fact, they use the abuser offices like Secretary of State, the guy who's running for governor in Georgia was the Secretary of State who's in charge of overseeing the election. You know, the they are rigging it to suppress the vote and purging people off the rolls in a way that is very unfair. So we need to make this a top issue because we will never address these structural barriers that we have until we do. 
here's the reality of it. If if anyone on either side is targeting communities based on their socioeconomic status or their race um, and trying to stop them from voting, that's awful and it's wrong and it's un-American. Um, at the same time, I hear a lot of whining, not about what you're talking about now, about needing to show an ID. Um, you know, I vote by mail in California. I think that's kind of weird. I could have my son fill it out if I wanted to. So I don't think there's anything wrong with ensuring the integrity of elections. I don't think there's anything wrong with enforcing election law. I don't think there's anything wrong with requiring an ID. But there is something very, very wrong with targeting certain races and trying to get them to not vote. So if that's happening, I think everyone you know, should put everything they have into making sure that doesn't happen. But I also think that we're hearing a lot of crying wolf about people being asked to show an ID when they vote. I can't do anything without an ID. I certainly can't board an airplane. So I, you know, I, I think we got to be reasonable about it. What if you're a Native American this? in North Dakota and you live on a reservation? So you have a P.O. box, but you're required to show a street address in North, in North Dakota. Like, like that, I mean, come on. Yeah, I honestly don't. I I don't know anything about North Dakota election law. I, I imagine there's there's some way for Native Americans to vote, but if there isn't, there should be. I think what's interesting is that there was such strong turnout, regardless of these issues and delays. Yeah, Democrats have historically not voted in midterms, so last night was a good sign. But we still have to deal with the fact that our voters are super concentrated in a few areas, and that is hard for us, you know, to deal with the Senate. Um, and so we're going to have to figure out some ways um, to, to just deal with some of these structural barriers. Yeah, a lot of um, a lot of what I think people don't realize when they say, oh, so-and-so is pulling up, you know, when you're talking about national polls, 10 points or whatever. The fact that 11 million Angelinos are, are, are saying that they'd vote for you is totally irrelevant. California has the amount of electoral votes it has. Uh, they're never going red. So those vote tallies, those sort of popular vote numbers are completely irrelevant and as, uh, as I said to Brandon earlier, a friend of mine said, you know, Republicans have been playing chess, Democrats have been playing checkers, and instead of learning how to play chess, they just insist that you change the game to checkers. And I think Democrats need to understand that, you know, having celebrities turn out the vote in New York City and L.A. isn't helpful. What's helpful is looking at the electoral map and communicating with the voters in all 50 states, and, and that's how you're going to win an election. I agree with you that Republicans have been playing more chess on on this and doing things like stealing the Supreme Court seat, using your power in a way uh, to accomplish, you know, your your goals. So I think I'm talking about electoral math. But yeah, no, sure. but I mean, I, you know, I think Democrats need to start thinking about how we use our power uh, in a way like like you guys do. And so why not start thinking about adding D.C. as a state? Right. And adding two senators, you know, and, a you know, a congressman or two from D.C. You have 600,000 people. Because our founders didn't want that. I mean, they were very actually very, very clear about that. And I think, you know, well, let me ask you this. Have changed so you said um, you said we have two Dakotas, which add four senators. And, and as a liberal, you don't like that. And my question to you would be, why dislike that? Why not just find a way for your party to communicate with those voters and accommodate them? Why not try to reach out? Why just say they shouldn't have it? Let's take it away rather well, than try, to, try to try to do a better job them. of doing that. Uh, but the thing is that we're seeing, I think, the mega trend in the returns from last night. You know, the red parts of the country are getting redder. The blue parts are getting bluer. Um, it's getting harder to, you know, to get inside of those bubbles, right, and, and persuade those voters. And so with the way that our, you know, system is designed, um, where you have a bunch of different states with not very many people who are, you know, are rural areas and they have two senators— it's going to be tough for us to to take a Wyoming or an Idaho or a Dakota. So change the message, make a message that's more accommodating to those voters. I th you know I would love to talk to you about what you think would work. 
conservative uh, policies. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, uh, that would be a fun conversation. But I also think you have six hundred thousand people in D.C. You know, Amazon's moving its second headquarters part of it to you know that region. You've got a lot of people in D.C. You know, more people than like in Wyoming and Idaho who can't well, vote for Senate Crystal or Congress. City, Crystal City is in Virginia and they have two senators. That's where Amazon is putting their facility. Yeah, yeah but there's going to be a lot of people moving to the region. They'll be Many of those people will be living in D.C. I remember what it was like to vote in D.C. It was terrible. Like you didn't have any say in the Congress. Shane, you were in the House when Republicans took back control. I guess what does this process look like now? Take us to like what looking forward will likely be like. You you think it's going to get a little more entrenched and partisan and, uh, and ugly, basically. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be different than what I experienced. So what we experienced was that for the first time, we could hold the Obama administration to account for what we thought were bad policies. And we've joked around a lot on this podcast about you know having um, Secretary Chu in front of the Energy and Commerce Committee and drilling him on gas prices. I think what Republicans really wanted to do then was they wanted to try to hold the Obama administration accountable for what they thought were really bad policies, including Dodd-Frank, including um, all their energy policies, including their health care policy. And we did as, as much work as we could to try to uh, make them look bad, to try to get them caught up in admitting that these policies were not you know what they were supposed to be. And any any uh, new majority should do that. So I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, Democrats should take the high road and just compliment uh, the Trump administration, and how great they are. What we didn't do is we didn't personally attack anyone. And, and I think that's actually what we're going to see, not just the president, but I suspect we're going to see it across a wide range of characters. I hope I'm wrong. But our experience was let's go through everything that's been accomplished between 2008 and 2010 tear it to shreds and investigate the heck out of it. Um, Democrats will likely do that. Uh, what I hope they do is I hope they limit it to that. But I, I get a sense that the political ground we're standing on is very different than it was eight years ago. I was on the other side of that. So I can speak to what it's like to be in the administration when the Congress flips uh, and the opposing party gets this oversight power. Uh, and it was very challenging. Um, I had to go up in front of the Congress a couple of different times um, and we had to spend a lot of time dealing with document requests. I had to turn over all of my emails regularly. I would run into congressional staffers who would say, you know, hey, I just spent much time. Do recipes in there? <laughs> you know, reading all of your emails. I didn't have anything to hide. Uh, and I, you know, didn't mind going up there uh, because I knew that I didn't have anything to hide. But it spent, it required a lot of resources, time, preparation, it could be a distraction, you know, from our team to accomplishing what we wanted. Uh, but I think now with the Trump administration, folks like in the Energy Department, in the White House, you know, they may have been acting in a way where they didn't think there's any consequence and they weren't going to be held accountable. How did they come up with this policy to bail out coal and nuclear plants? What industry involvement was in that? We're going to find out. And I'm not sure that that's going to be a good thing for for them. Well, on that friendly note, uh, do you guys have something nice you can offer in this post-election say something nice segment? I have something nice to offer. Um, I'm going to offer Brandon a very expensive dinner <laughs> because I lost our bet. I deserve it. On, uh, on Beto O'Rourke. I, uh, I, I do feel good that, um, that Texas is not turning blue and, and never will. I think we saw the governor spread a lot bigger than the Beto spread. But Brandon should feel good that he said throughout that this was going to be a very close race. Um, I believed him for about three days. I didn't for the remaining six months of our bet. And uh, yeah, I'll be honest, I was sitting there refreshing my phone every five minutes, despite the fact that it auto refreshes because I just couldn't bear the thought of being wrong. <laughs> and how close did Beto end up coming to? Two and a half points. Two and a half points. And the bet was to get within seven. Cruz did obviously win. Uh, Brandon, how are you feeling about that? 
while I'm devastated, uh, I am inspired by the campaign that he ran. He ran on a message of hope and inclusion, uh, which is the very opposite of what Trump was running on at the very end. It was, you know, divisiveness and fear. Uh, and so I'm encouraged that many people heard Beto's message and responded so positively to that. I hope he runs for president. If he does, you know, I'll be I'll be writing a check the day he announces. Um, and so and to Shane, you know, my say something nice. He was right about the Senate. I mean, um, I thought we would hold, you know, a couple of those uh, tough seats. Maybe even gain one you predicted. Um, and Bold. Uh, I said we would it would be a tie, uh, but so that was wrong. And you know Shane had his thumb on the pulse in some of those states, and you know I still feel like you know people that are responding to these things like the caravan and whatnot. I I just I'm not getting it, <laughs> and I think a lot of people in my party just are at a loss to figure out how that's motivating people. But it clearly is, and as Shane said, we we got to figure out how to do better with some of these voters. And um, I love to continue that conversation over the course of our show. I'm very excited about you know the fact that now all the elections are done. Let's talk about policy. We have a new Congress, a different Congress. We are going to have to work together. That is clear. We said it earlier in the show. We are going to have to work together over the next two years if we want to accomplish anything. So let's figure out where we can have common ground and get some solutions together. I'm excited to talk about it more over a delicious dinner that I get to go to regardless, right? Right? Yeah, our, you, you were kind of in the poll position, right? Because it really didn't matter what happened. <laughs> oh, I loved it. It was great. For any of our you know listeners that are still uh, made it this far into the podcast, uh, we accept all tweet recommendations for where Shane has yeah, to buy dinner go for in dinner Los dinner Angeles. Anywhere in LA is fair game. Nobu, maybe? That's nice. I could do Nobu. I could do Nobu. I mean, you guys forget that I get to eat too. It's not all bad for me. Like, I still get to eat with friends. That's oh, not the worst oh, thing in the world. Oh, everyone's still getting along. There's the kumbaya moment we were going for. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Next time, Brandon said, we're going to talk about some policy solutions. We're going to get you guys on the hot seat talking about what you think could actually get done. We kind of alluded to some potentials uh, in this show. Yeah, that'll be like the season finale, right? We take yeah. a little holiday break. We're going to take a bit of a break over the holidays, think about what season two would look like. Uh, Please tweet your feedback to us. Yes, absolutely. Find Political Climate on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Spotify, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love that. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, Again, yeah, tweet at us at poly underscore climate, P-O-L-I underscore climate. Uh, Let's engage. We want to hear from you. What do you make of the midterm outcomes? Let's talk about it. Um, Thanks again. And until next time. So that could be interesting oh, for, yeah, for how... Uh, yeah. Edit out my comment that I misunderstood him. <laughs> Great. Just edit it out. Yeah, just edit it out, Julia. We, <laughs> Julia, I'll fix it. We ha- we <laughs> wouldn't be an episode without us saying, like, you just edit it out. <laughs> for those of you who hear a light thumping, it's Julia <laughs> hitting herself in the head with a microphone. <laughs> Love working with you guys. <laughs>